Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to learn about helping teenagers navigate emerging social platforms like TikTok, where we've seen examples of harmful misinformation with the intent to mislead. But sometimes it's the case of influencers unknowingly spreading untruths and conspiracy theories in search of clicks and fame. Part of the solution is to empower young people to become more clued up content creators, says this week's guest, Sophia Smith-Gaylor, a journalist who has worked with BBC News and Vice News, and with half a million TikTok followers, one of the leading voices calling for a new frontier of journalism. She says that newsrooms need to actively invest in TikTok, YouTube or Instagram to meet young audiences where they are. Otherwise, they will end up simply listening to the loudest voices on the platform, which don't always have the best values at heart. Sophia recently developed a content creator literacy program with a US university. She tells us today about the big breakthroughs she's seen in helping young people practically understand how social media can be a force for both good and bad. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Sophia, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Sophia, much of our audience will know you from your work uh, on on TikTok, where you've got half a million followers there, 15 million likes on the platform. You've done very well. What I'd like to know to kick things off is who is Sophia outside of TikTok? Gosh. Well, to ask that question, I guess you're kind of asking who I am outside of journalism, because the two for me are very interlinked. I mean, the kind of content that I put on TikTok now, it has changed from the beginning, but you probably get a better insight of who Sophia is outside of TikTok from the kind of content that I make now, which is more about my interests, my passions, not necessarily about the day-to-day job like it was years ago. The Sophia outside of journalism is uh, a keen cook, a keen writer for pleasure, not just for profession, Love video games when I get the chance. Surprised to get the time. <laughs> into gardening, yeah. Uh, into into nice clothes and 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 shopping and yeah. That, that that that's me. Those are some of the some of my main interests. <laughs> but that's the good thing about TikTok, isn't it? It's kind of like a microscope into your life where you you are allowed to demonstrate so many of your passions, your hobbies, you know, your musical gifts, your language talents, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I, I love it so much. Yeah. I, I do wonder about that. How often do you post on TikTok these days? How frequent is it? It isn't as frequent as it used to be. And that's for two reasons. So one is that when you're growing an account, you should be posting more. So the fact that I have a, a decent amount of followers now, I don't hold myself to that same pressure. But the other reason is that I don't have the time to post even as regularly as I would like. So even in the past week, I think I've only managed to put one video out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to have time today or tomorrow. Sunday, theoretically, I should rest. Uh, But I bet you a TikTok will probably pop up because I'll be there chomping at the bit thinking, Sphere, it's been a week since your last one. You better do one. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, it's if it's twice a week, that's that's good for me. It's more about quality than quantity now. Keeps the algorithm happy, keeps yourself happy. Yeah. Super. So, I mean, yeah, outside of, outside of TikTok, you're an accomplished writer, author, speaker, journalist, but um, you've also been developing a creator literacy initiative as part of a fellowship uh, with Brown University in the States in response to online misinformation. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was really lucky to be part of the Information Future Labs inaugural fellowship cohort. So that is a lab that's in Brown University's School of Public Health. And I got to spend six months developing an idea that is supposed to be an information solution to an information problem. So that lab looks a lot at mis and disinformation, a lot of it in the health space. And my information problem that I brought, because all the fellows are from different places around the world and we all bring something from from where we're from, the problem I brought was low online media literacy amongst British teenagers. That's not to um, say anything mean about British teens, like the rates aren't good for any age group here in the country, but the point is that teens are still in an educational setting where we can we can help them. So I wanted to try and look at the space a bit to figure out, okay, what are the current online media literacy interventions that they're receiving, uh, that they get access to, and are they good enough? Mm-hmm. Why are these disturbing statistics not really changing about young people and online harms and feelings about being happy and healthy online. I was very happy to sort of prove myself wrong, but my hunch was I don't think that young people, when questioned, actually know a lot about what they're consuming, which is surprising given how often they are on these platforms. So I wanted to bring an intervention that focused on vertical video because that's what I wasn't seeing in loads of the resources that I was looking at. I mean, the government, for example, has a page Mm. on their online uh, media literacy strategy and resources that schools can use. And you'll see that loads of them, loads of them are not built by the people who are experts in vertical video. So they'll be built by newsrooms who historically have not necessarily um, been quick to pivot to understanding the importance of vertical video, or they have been crafted by foundations or charities who are are great but they don't necessarily have creators again who are crafting and delivering the resource and then there were some that are built by platforms and I know what these resources are like I've been part of making some of them sometimes you know I've been part of a initiative like this that was delivered by YouTube and I know firsthand that there are bizarre kind of criteria to these programs including that if you take part in them or if you're studying the resource you don't see any other platform mentioned you know only youtube will be mentioned and then it, you can find resources that tiktok has helped create and oh that's weird this resource only mentions tiktok and it's like because they've created the resource they don't want to give any sort of competitor airtime to another one but that's not how we operate in our social media ecosystems we need resources where we can freely and candidly talk about all of the platforms that we're on our different relationships with how we post or message or interact with these different platforms anyway so I thought let me make something better let me make something that's vertical video first uh platform agnostic and that helps young people know a lot more about what content creators are doing on platforms like Instagram and TikTok when they're trying to reach out to you when they're trying to create content that you enjoy content that you don't enjoy what is it that they're trying to do and inviting young people into a space where they can think more critically about it so that was the intervention that i built our digital journalism conference news wide is just three weeks away and we'd love to see you there join us for a day of panels and workshops at reuters hq in london on the 15th of november 
Our events are designed to give you the latest industry knowledge to take back to your newsroom, and we'll be discussing everything from generative AI to community building to news podcasts and much, much more. Head over to newsrewide.com to grab your ticket, and we'll see you there. You, you spoke there about having a hunch, essentially, that people underestimated the impact of what they're consuming on social media. Where did that hunch come from? It really probably came more from adults than it did from teenagers themselves, because adults, as a journalist, they're who I interact with. You know, I'm 29 and I don't have children, so I, I don't interact with um, young people in person. I, of course, interact with young people all the time in my comment sections and online because I know that uh, a lot of the people I reach are young, but certainly my main demographics that I reach are 25 to 34 and 18 to 24 and then there'll be a bunch of teens in there so I don't always know sort of how young someone may be but you get the sense online in comment sections that some people know what's going on but they're in the minority you often get a lot of comments that suggest to you that was your take on my video like you've maybe not understood why I made it you've maybe not understood this and um, when it comes to adults the people who I do interact with in person all the time the willful ignorance about vertical video. So, and whenever I say that, I mean anything from YouTube shorts to TikTok videos to Instagram reels. I was just like, well, if that's how you think, you're going to be passing that down. Right. Um, if the adults aren't getting clued up, uh, they're not going to be able to offer like a sophisticated critical thinking arena for the young people in their lives to ask questions and challenge ideas. So what I designed with this, and this is where Brown was fantastic. I've never had to build evaluations before. I've never had to kind of build out this very academic system to create what I was creating and evaluate it and gather data as a result to then be able to demonstrate whether my hunch was right and whether my intervention worked. So each of the sessions that I would deliver, and these would be one hour sessions in schools around England, there was a, a pre-session evaluation and a post-session evaluation. And I snuck a quiz into that pre-session evaluation that we then went through in class. And then at the end of the session, they would have to do the quiz again. And the idea, in you know, in an ideal world, loads more young people would get the answers right than the first time around if they got them wrong the first time around you know you hope in that one hour they've learned something and I I have the data from 206 pupils my goodness is it hard to get young people to finish worksheets that you give them that was a lesson that I learned because I I taught nearer to 300 children but it's great that I got data from 206 of them um and it was I mean pretty scary from my perspective I found that 66 percent of them weren't able to name a single way in which content creators can promote a positive social impact with making a video. That's 66%. Two thirds. Right. Yep. And then, bear in mind, we're in a country, you know, online safety bill obsessed yep. country. 78% of students couldn't identify a single way a content creator might promote harm with their videos. Yep. For me, this is deeply concerning it's actually quite low down on something that teachers use called Bloom's taxonomy, which is the, the infrastructure that you use in a lesson plan and in introducing an idea to young people to get them to think 
critically and it takes time to move up the pyramid they're able to analyze and they're able to understand and the first step of doing that is simply getting young people to name or identify something um, because they may not fully understand it but at least they know what it's called at least they've heard of it at least they know something about what's going on right and these were um 14 to 18 year olds and and they were unable in the majority to identify how creators promote harm or positive yep. social change with their videos and that's that's not right but but they're less likely to be able to spot harm than good yeah but they weren't that able to spot good in the first place yeah yeah they they and why is that yeah on all these worksheets you know and all these um sometimes it was a paper worksheet sometimes it was a google form that they would do and it was just time and time again unsure not sure unsure not sure don't know and it's very rare in the whole process that i ever marked an answer as wrong uh-huh. especially because this is quite sort of subjective people's different ideas about it it's very rare i thought something was wrong sometimes it would be oh, not really enough detail here i don't understand what the what the young person was trying to to say mm-hmm. but most of the time it was literally just unsure don't know and, and did you see an improvement oh yeah before and after yeah tell us about the results those numbers i mentioned before uh 66 66 and 78 right so good and bad respectively yeah so we're gonna we're gonna twist them now so there were 22 percent that were able to identify um one or two ways in which a creator promoted harm at the beginning of the session just 22 percent were able to do that by the end of my session 85 percent were able to name at least one or two ways at the beginning of the session, just 34% of teenagers were able to identify a way in which a creator promotes positive social change with their videos. And again, it was 85% of teenagers at the end were able Amazing. to identify these. So that's a, that's a huge change. It's a huge leap. How did you do that? What, was, what did you introduce to help them come to terms with that? So it was a lot to pack in into an hour. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. It was tough. Yeah. And I'm not a trained teacher, so I'm trained. I've, I've, I'm accredited to deliver sex education because I did training for that ahead of the book that I did that was all about debunking sex myths. I did that. Uh, I'm really grateful that I did that because I learned how to do things like write a lesson plan and think about different kinds of, you know, different ways of learning that young people like in a classroom. And again, using this Bloom's taxonomy that I mentioned, I had to try and get as high up to the critical thinking space as I could in just one hour while also teaching young people things they were learning for the first time. So it's so much to pack in. And for, I believe, the majority, if not all of the schools, my talk would have been introduced as a careers talk. So it would not have been introduced as a kind of boring, learn how to use the internet kind of session because yeah. I would completely turn off of that as well. So the idea was that, oh, this this sort of TikToker journalist is coming in to talk about her job. Let's learn about it. And so the session would begin with this quiz, which would ask questions about the vertical video climate. It would ask young people questions like how many, how many 18 to 24-year-olds use uh TikTok or Instagram instead of Google when they want to find a place for lunch because I know we know those figures uh, and I would ask them and people would guess and with a lot of those questions uh, young people were pretty savvy uh, when you ask them what are the main platforms that young people find their news on the vast majority of them got that question right which would be 
YouTube, TikTok and Instagram. There are a couple of questions that I asked that they got almost universally wrong, which was fascinating. They generally speaking think TikTok does way more to combat harassment and bullying than it actually does. Interesting. And I think that's connected to probably school talks which emphasize bullying is bad, you should report bullying. And they probably think platforms as a result do a lot of that themselves when we know they don't necessarily. Uh, and they also completely underestimated the amount of TikTok videos that are uploaded every quarter of every year. So found mm. those things out. And I, I'd go through the answers in class. And it was always when I asked that question, when I said, you know, in this specific period in time, TikTok removed 81 million videos. What percentage of total uploads was that? And when I would say less than 1%, they'd all go, what? <gasps> Like they were all, yeah. would all be really surprised. Over a quarter, you said. Yeah, of just one quarter. Yeah, in the in the year. Yeah. yeah, and so they'd be really shocked by that. And then I would show them a video that I made, which introduced them to who I was, and why I use TikTok for my journalism. So they were introduced to an individual who uses the app to try and make uh, the world a better place, to try and get more people seeing journalism that holds power to account stuff introducing ideas like that handily in doing so I because my investigations uh for both the BBC and Vice News where I've worked looked at the TikTok platform being naughty you know it was a very seamless way to introduce um the downsides of platforms as well as the upsides in one video handily my career can kind of demonstrate that and uh, yep. then we'd talk about it. We would do this exercise with post-it notes where I'd get a whiteboard and I'd sort of draw a kind of line that would be a continuum. And I'd say, right, this line mm -hmm. goes from positive social impact content to negative social impact content. We're going to get our post-it notes. And we're going to write different kinds of creators or content and we're going to put it on this continuum. And some some are quite easy easy to place. So obviously, obviously, a bullying video would go in the negative social impact area, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I had people putting Roe versus Wade information in the positive social impact bit, which you know, as someone who reports on the kind of stuff that I do, that was that was good to see. Uh, I did have. A couple of boys put Andrew Tate in the positive section, which would always be a very seizable, teachable moment. I would always see their faces like change dramatically when I would say, oh, yeah, I've reported on him and I have had his followers come for me. And suddenly there's a human in the room who can say something about this space that they've possibly never had before, which is why I think it's really important for content creators to be able to go into schools and deliver talks like this. Uh, then I would say, hey, right, a pranking, pranking videos. Where do pranking videos go? Because they're quite common on TikTok and these sort of youth-concentrated platforms. They're really common and they're a really good area of content to introduce this idea of, wow, it's not black and white, there are shades of grey. Pranking content, it does it cause harm? Um, it makes me really happy to see it because it's good comedy. So it's bringing the positive impact in that it's, something entertaining for me mm -hmm. but was it entertaining for all of the people involved in the video was this video in particular made 
ethically, do you think, or do you think it actually made fun of someone? And then you would see young people talking about it and 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 thinking about it. After that, they then see another video where I, in the video, I explain how I write a TikTok script or a vertical video script. And then they would go and write some themselves. And they only would have had about 10 or 15 minutes to write the script, which isn't much time at all. Yeah. Uh, but Plenty managed to do it. And I had young people write scripts on everything from a, a meringue recipe, revision tips, gaming tips, Someone did a really sophisticated explainer on Biden's Willow project. And that was in a school where I was delivering it to year nines. So this girl was so young and she knew all about this Alaska drilling project and was so eloquent and it blew my mind. Um, And yeah, we would deliver, you know, people who had the courage would stand up and sort of read out the script to the class and I would review it and say, yeah, like really good hook. Uh, what's another kind of hook you could use for that script? And then, then they would do the post-session evaluation and bish, bash, bosh. That would be that would be the session. Okay, let's recap. Young people might be the social media generation, but they are generally unaware of how content on platforms can influence our behaviour, for better or for worse. Not only do they underestimate the size and scope of the platforms, but they think the platforms do more to combat harmful information than they actually do. So how do we improve that? Sophia's example shows us that solutions need to come from people with first-hand knowledge of how these spaces operate and what types of content resonate with users. Prank videos are a great example because they can easily go viral and show how people can be influenced in both a positive and negative way from watching the content. This is a platform agnostic approach because prank videos exist on all vertical video platforms. There's a practical element too of getting students to make their own TikTok scripts and vertical videos, and this ingrains healthy lessons in them as well. So I guess the question is, is this really about making news consumers more media literate so they can question what they see on their screens? Or is it more about content creators becoming more sensitive about what they are posting? I wanted to build an intervention that still educates you about the online harms, but presents this world to you as the world you're likely to interact with and use for the rest of your life. And you may even use it professionally. Look at me doing it. This is how I use it. This is how it's really benefited my life. Mm -hmm. It can probably benefit yours as well, as long as you know how to use it safely. So it was very much presented in that vein that I I was very conscious that the young people I was delivering to, many of them, it's not that many of them are going to become content creators one day. They are already content creators. And yeah, true. Yeah, the idea was that the, I wanted it to be an enabling talk. And I really felt like a lot of the resources that were on the government's page that are free for schools to access were very fear mongering, doom and gloom. The internet is bad. And I'm more. The internet can be bad, but it can also be really good. Well, you've spoken to that brilliantly about that. Uh, student in year nine who was able to you know use the platform to articulate this this brilliant knowledge that she had exactly you know these platforms like tiktok are, you know it's, it's like most things it's a two-sided corner it, it can be a place for you know the innocuous and you know playful content it can be you know a place for provocative content instructive and constructive stuff there's a you know when 34 million videos are posted to tiktok every day you're going to have a wide spectrum of of content on there yeah, exactly. 
and for any schools that want to use it it's available for free on my website so you just go on there the videos i've spoken about a less a, a template for the lesson plan they're all on there if you want to yeah. if you want to deliver this session as well yeah sophia i know that you obviously spend a lot of time on tiktok it's why you've become as successful as you are because you've learned the lessons of what works on those platforms and applied it to your journalism what's your perspective on the worst side of tiktok and the 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 bad examples of what we perhaps see on the platform where there are concerns about misinformation it's deeply troubling and it's something that neither the platform nor journalism uh, have really figured out how to how to deal with it it's interesting you know we're having this conversation in the middle of the israel gaza conflict Mm. and the continued recalcitrance of news media to put any of their debunking content on TikTok is mind-blowing. It's the platform where we're seeing so much of the content unfold, similar to the invasion of Ukraine, where we are seeing content being uploaded to TikTok first now, rather than it being reposted there from other arenas. And yet we're not seeing the shift in planting, engaging, authoritative, debunking and disinformation challenging content there. Um, yeah. I I call it a debunk drought. Interesting. I th- or, you know, you can call it a debunk drought, a debunk desert. I would describe TikTok as a debunk desert and creating debunk content for those of us who've tried it, it's really hard. It's it's people don't want to watch it because it's kind of a phrase I learned this week, eat your greens content. You know, you're telling someone you might see this, but actually it's not true. You've got to walk this very delicate tightrope of not condescending someone when you're saying you might have shared this, but actually it's from 2021 yeah. and it's not the thing you thought it was. You know, you've got to be very careful with how how you do it. And it takes time and expertise to figure out good messaging that that challenges those clips what do you think is the greater threat posed is it willing bad actors posting misinformation or people who are perhaps doing it ignorantly people with large platforms who are you know posting content in search of clicks in search of followers and actually that being conspiracy theories tall tales unsubstantiated claims which do you think is the the greater threat because both are present probably the latter probably the latter I think there's more of the latter. We we get caught up when we talk about mis and disinformation, assuming that's what loads of information is. And I think a lot of information, again, something that I learned this week is it's just, it's true, but it's being misrepresented. If something's not being accurately represented or information is being delivered without context that actually alters Mm-hmm. how you digest that piece of information that's really hard and again tiktok as i talk through in the in the session with the students tiktok is built to front load information that grabs you and for that information to grab you there is often something sensationalist about it or clickbaity yep. or you know deeply shocking or surprising and 
we harness that. When we send journalism viral on there, we, we harness that. We take advantage of the fact that we can craft a hook in that vein. And you see this a lot, don't you, Sophia, with you'll never guess what this uh, girl did Home Alone, you'll never guess what NASA put on the moon, this kind of thing, which is there to grab you for those hooks and make you see through to the end. Yeah. And then often there isn't much substance no, in the video. No, but it, w- it would be a journalist job and certainly um, my, my journalist peers on TikTok, you see us then in the explainer deliver something that is jam-packed with as much information as we can squeeze into that one minute 30 or, or whatever time frame we've decided. But mm-hmm. there will be creators out there who aren't thinking about packing it full of full of info. They might just put out that the sensational lines at the beginning and then and then they sort of leave it there um and don't deliver the information that's required to properly understand what's going on yeah and if you've got 78 percent of the next generation who who aren't going to be clued up on the potential harm in these videos they're going to be going along with it and not necessarily having the skills to think for themselves when they see that i mean when i watch those videos i know with my media literate brain i think well that's unsubstantiated that seems a bit stretched that doesn't seem true but that's you know, clearly a, a a gap that needs to be solved for the next generation. Definitely. Yeah. And that's what you're aiming to do right now. So long may that continue, mm-hmm. Sophia. Um, I suppose the, the place to leave it, and what, if I've taken one thing from today, I suppose is that solutions work when they come from sort of active participants in that space. It's telling that you kind of said that journalists and news organizations aren't really authorities in this space. So I do wonder, is there then opportunities for news organisations to collaborate with the people that are authorities in that space to arrive at maybe other solutions? Possibly. I, well, I don't know. What solution are you talking about here? Well, media literacy amongst young news consumers. I just very pessimistically think that news media does not necessarily hold the the knowledge in this space to to deliver what I am talking about today. I'm talking very specifically about vert- vertical video, and it's an arena mm-hmm. which news media has demonstrated, you know, five years plus into it, that it's not the authority for crafting the best kind of content on there. It's independent content creators who by far have created the most engaging content on there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did not work on this solution with a newsroom. No. I built this solution with a school of public health yep. uh, and me. It's telling. So with, with that being said, for our audience listening in, who are your peers, journalists, editors, other media professionals, what's their role in this conversation, if any, from your perspective? In terms of news media, news media has to focus on something completely different. News media has to focus on how it creates the most accessible content for audiences. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it needs to make and craft that content on the platforms they're on. And that's a whole other area that needs innovation. To sit on that continuum that you spoke about earlier. To sit on that continuum. And I think, again, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, I don't think I've ever seen as much distrust of traditional media as I've seen in the past couple of weeks on the platforms that I'm on. And promoting and actively investing in vertical video over time, I am 100% confident, builds trust. I've seen it with the work I do. I've seen it with my peers who are on there and whose work I really admire. And 
news media is now in a position where it's not even starting from square one. It's starting from... Minus square one. Yeah, minus square one. Not even a square, you know, a little oblong or triangle somewhere feeling very sorry for itself is it that bad because there are people like yourselves who are you know starting to break the mold sophia and to prove that journalism can have a place on these platforms yeah possibly but ultimately am i am i a senior editor have i got a role am i in a position of power within news journalism i'm not Mm. so depends how you look at it depends how you look at it Mm. lots to think about sophia um Thank you so much for sparing the time to speak to me. I really appreciated it. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. What I've learned from today is that young people need to skill up and wise up on platforms like TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, where uploading content is an inherent part of the experience. So how do we do that? In Sophia, we have a great example of a journalist with a very significant social media presence using her expertise there to show teenagers not only how to navigate this space, but post responsibly. As newsrooms, our responsibilities remain the same in what we post and debunk, but we are not the authorities in this space. That's where we might need to think about partnering up and thinking outside of the box. But what did you take from today? Find me on Twitter slash X at JPG Journalism or email me on jacobatjournalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That's all we have time for this week, though. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>